Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. Democrats in Congress and the Treasury Secretary to start monitoring every bank account that has $10,000 of cash flow per year. So is the plan to catch billionaire tax cheats by snooping on accounts that just have $10,000 in them? Well, that's not exactly an accurate description. So let me help you with an accurate description of what is actually happening here. And there was a statement by the Secretary of Treasury on exactly this. Uh, where she said in this statement, so just to reiterate, she deep, deeply appreciates the work of Chairman Wyden and Chairman Neal's leadership on reconciliation and in particular the need to close the tax gap. At the core of the discrepancy in the ways types of income are reported to the IRS are opaque income sources frequently of which avoid frequently avoid scrutiny while wages and federal benefits are typically subject to full compliance. So people who get W-2s, whether they are teachers, firefighters, employees at Fox News, anywhere where they maybe getting a double W-2, that's not what we're talking about here. They're already reporting their income. We're talking about high net worth individuals who are not paying the taxes they owe, and that's what this uh, policy would propose to address. But in the statement that you just cited, it says many top earners avoid paying billions in the taxes that they owe by exploiting the system. So what? Uh, why is it that you need to start looking at accounts that just have $10,000 in it? Maybe somebody doesn't get a W-2. That is that is not exactly what it does. The $10,000 is the anything under that would not be applicable, nor would people who receive W-2s, Peter. What we're talking about here are people who are high net worth individuals who are not paying the taxes they owe, something we think everybody believes should happen and can help pay for uh, in a range of important investments to make us more competitive. This might look Jen, like. Go ahead, Jen. You said you called me. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm okay. Thank you. Thanks. I have um, follow up for a couple of topics. First off, Secretary Buttigieg, given the seriousness of the the the, the supply chain crisis and the, the multiple issues that you outlined, wouldn't it be wise for the secretary to? get back on the bicycle, so to speak, and come back to work. A new poll found that 65% of voters think that, given what's going on, he should come back to work. He's at work. He's on paternity leave. Uh, I was on a conference call with him this morning. He's in, he's in the department now, every day. Listen, Emerald, I think what you're getting at here is this question about whether uh, men, parents, uh, women, should have paternity and maternity leave? And the answer is absolutely yes. In our view, that is the policy of this administration. That is what we're pressing to make law so it's a reality for women, parents, fathers uh, across the country, and we're not going to back away from that. This is a little different job than a lot of, and as one of my colleagues noted, we knew the supply chain issues were coming. Um, well, 
Emerald, just to be clear, uh, we are quite confident in the capabilities, the talents of the civil servants, the leadership at the Department of Transportation, just are, as we are at companies uh, across the country where women, men take maternity and paternity leave. I took 12 weeks of maternity leave when I was the White House communications director, and I'm grateful to former President Obama for that and for leadership at the time for that. This is something men, women should have. They should have this time to bond with their children. Not going to apologize from that for, for that from here, and certainly uh, we are uh, able to get the job done for the American people in the interim. Topic. Who is the, the point person? Who is the main person in charge in his paternity leave? There are a range of officials leading different components of the Department of Transportation, including the Chief of Staff, the Deputy Secretary of Transportation, a range of officials who keep that place humming, functioning every single day. I think we're going to keep going along. Go ahead. Emerald, I think we've spent plenty of time with you today. Go ahead. Why is the Biden administration? Emerald, what, Emerald let's give some other people more time here, okay? Thank you. Go ahead. Something I still believe that Build Back Better will not add a dime to the national debt. Correct, it won't. Why would he, why, why should Americans believe that? Because it won't. Go ahead. What if taxes that he says he wants to you know, get more taxes in? What if it doesn't happen? What if the economy goes sour? Lots of things can happen. What are you, you're going to tell from up there future generations, not even born yet, that they're not on the hook for this. Is that right? That's right, and hopefully you'll report accurate information yourself. Go I, ahead. Just Thank you, Jen. Uh, there is a mask requirement inside D.C. restaurants, yet President Biden and the First Lady were not wearing masks while walking around a D.C. restaurant on Saturday. Why? Well, I think what we are referring to is a photo of them walking out of a restaurant after they they had eaten masks in hand where they had not yet put them back on yet. So I would say, of course, uh, there are moments when we all don't put masks back on as quickly as we should. But I don't think we should lose, miss, lose the force through the trees here and that our objective here is to get more people vaccinated, make sure that, uh, that schools and companies around the country can put in place requirements to save more lives and keep people safer. Uh, and, you know, not overly focus on moments in time that don't reflect overarching policy. It was not just exiting the restaurant, though. He was walking through the restaurant with no mask on. There is a carve out for uh, people under two or people who are actively eating or drinking. So I'm just curious why the president was doing this. I think I just addressed it, Peter. Okay. We always work for more access. We always fight for more access. Inflation is skyrocketing, as I don't need to tell you. The prices for home heating costs, cars groceries, furniture, rent, gasoline are, are hitting Americans right in the wallet. The, the White House response has been generally to say, hey, inflation shows that we're coming out of the recession, so it's a good sign. President Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, enthusiastically retweeted an economist who had said in part, most of the economic problems we're facing, inflation, supply chains, et cetera, are high class problems. Now, 
I get the larger point that when we're talking about economics, we're coming out of a recession. But doesn't it seem tone deaf to say that rising prices and empty grocery store shelves are high class problems? Isn't that a bit dismissive? Well, that's not exactly what the tweet said, nor the retweet of the original tweet, uh, which is what we're talking about here. It is true, though, Jake, and economists will tell you this, and I know you've interviewed some of them as well, that the fact is the unemployment rate is about half what it was a year ago. So a year ago, people were in their homes. 10% of people were unemployed. Gas prices were low because nobody was driving. People weren't buying goods because they didn't have jobs. Now more people have jobs. More people are buying goods. That's increasing the demand. That's a good thing. At the same time, we also know that the supply is low because we're coming out of the pandemic. Uh, and because a bunch of manufacturing sectors across the world have shut down because ports uh, haven't been functioning as they should be. These are all things we're working through. What people should know is that inflation is going to come down next year. Economists have said that. They're all projecting that. But we're working to attack these cost issues that are impacting the American people every single day. But there's different issues in different sectors and, and many of the ones you mentioned. Well, Chief of Staff Ron Klain, back when he was a private citizen in 2018 on Twitter, he went after the Trump White House for efforts to dismiss rising prices. Klain asked if Vice President Pence would do what then Commerce Secretary Ross did and quote, hold up a Campbell's soup can and argue that price increases for basic food items really don't hurt the middle class, unquote. There are a lot of people out there who might say, well, why did Ron Klain think that rising prices was a serious concern under Trump and not under Biden? I can tell you from sitting in a lot of meetings with Ron Klain day in and day out, he is obsessed with lowering costs for the American people, and that's driven from the president. And how we're approaching that is we're trying to increase competition in the agricultural sector. We're working to get ports up and running, which is an announcement we made earlier this week. We're working with labor unions, with industry leaders to make sure that there's more of a movement of goods. This is our focus every single day. There isn't the same issue in every single sector, but every meeting I'm in, he's pressing for the economic team and others to do more. And that's what the American people should know. They are young migrants teenagers and kids flown in from the southern border in the dead of night. The New York Post reveals the Biden administration uses nighttime charter flights from Texas to transport unaccompanied minors to relatives or sponsors at locations far from the border. The paper spotted this World Atlantic Airlines MD-83 charter plane that arrived Friday night at the Westchester County Airport north of New York City just before 10 p.m. But some flights have arrived as late as 2 and 4 in the morning. The World Atlantic Airlines plane has really hopped around. Last Friday, starting at the crack of dawn at 6.37 a.m., it flew from McAllen, Texas, to Villa Hermosa, Mexico, a possible expulsion flight sending Central American migrants back to Mexico. It returned to McAllen, then jumped to El Paso, and at 2.04 p.m., headed east to Jacksonville, Florida, before finally flying north to Westchester, touching down there at 9.52 p.m. Well, this morning, that plane was back in the air. It took off early from McAllen, Texas, and right now, is on the ground in Mexico. No word on where the next destination is, but we'll keep tabs on where it is going. Border Patrol agents confirm criminals are among those stopped at the border. Last Thursday and Saturday, El Salvador and migrants were rounded up in Hidalgo, Texas. Background checks revealed three members of the violent MS-13 gang, one individual with a murder conviction, as well as attempted murder. One of the migrants had previously made it to Dallas, where he racked up a conviction for assault and now faces a warrant for sexual assault of a minor.
We have fewer democracies in the world today than we did 15 years ago. Fewer, not more, fewer. Cannot be sustained. That's why from day one of my administration, I've taken concrete steps to put human rights back at the center of our foreign policy and reassert our moral leadership on the global stage to lead, as Chris has so often heard me say, with the power of our example, not the example of our power. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. This is the 20th October year of our Lord, 2021. Yeah. Yeah. Before I even comment, I... I mean, did you see her? And then you see the president and the president not masked and the president doing those hate things. Gonna play Deucey twice and others that are getting involved now. And I'm gonna comment because I think it's a great way, once again, to prove my point. There is a mask requirement inside DC restaurants, yet President Biden and the First Lady were not wearing masks while walking around a DC restaurant on Saturday. Why? Well, I think what we were referring to is a photo of them walking out of a restaurant after they they had eaten masks in hand where they had not yet put them back on yet. So I would say, of course, uh, there are moments when we all don't put masks back on as quickly as we should. It was not just exiting the restaurant, though. He was walking through the restaurant with no mask on. There is a carve out for uh, people under two or people who are actively eating or drinking. So I'm just curious why the president was doing this. I think I just addressed it, Peter. Okay. Uh, why did the president break his promise not to enter into any decisions about what cases the Justice Department should bring and not bring? Uh, how did he break his promise? Well, he was asked if the DOJ should prosecute people January 6th committee subpoenas, and he did not say, I will let the Justice Department decide. He said yes. The president continues to believe that January 6th was uh, one of the darkest days in our democracy. He also continues to... Why is the administration flying thousands of migrants from the border to Florida and New York in the middle of the night? Uh, well, I'm not sure that it's in the middle of the night, but let me tell you what's happening here. Um, it is our 4:29 a.m. Well, he, very he, early in the morning. Here we are talking dawn. about early flights, earlier than you might like to take a flight. Um, it is our legal responsibility to safely care for unaccompanied children, 
until they swiftly can be swiftly unified with a parent or a vetted sponsor. There's this new proposal by Democrats in Congress and the Treasury Secretary to start monitoring every bank account that has $10,000 of cash flow per year. So is the plan to catch billionaire tax cheats by snooping on accounts that just have $10,000 in them? Well, that's not exactly an accurate description. So let me help you with an accurate description of what is actually happening here. And there was a statement by the Secretary of Treasury on exactly this. But in the statement that you just cited, it says many top earners avoid paying billions in the taxes that they owe by exploiting the system. So what, uh, why is it that you need to start looking at accounts that just have $10,000 in it? Maybe somebody doesn't get a W-2. That is, that is not exactly what it does. The $10,000 is the anything under that would not be applicable, nor would people who receive W-2s. If the whole point of a vaccine mandate is to make people safer, but a vaccine mandate also means tons of police and military may walk off the job, then at the end of the day, does a vaccine mandate make people safer? Well, where are tons of police and military walking off the job? Well, the Washington Post says that hundreds of thousands of U.S. service members remain unvaccinated, uh, which is leading to questions about possible military readiness. Uh, the L.A. County Sheriff says that 5 to 10 percent of their workforce could walk off the job. But there are other problems in the world than COVID-19. International terror, gang violence, murder, arson, drug what, dealing. What was, what, what, was the high, what, was the, what was the number one cause of death among police officers last year? Do you know? COVID-19 or an exemption request. Safety, though, all these other problems, terror, murder, robberies, kidnappings. Is there any concern that if police forces shrink or if the size of the ready military force shrinks, that the United States or localities may not be equipped properly? You know, I remember that Democratic leaders in the press said that you should rush previous press secretaries from Trump administration out of restaurants. They don't belong in civil society. It's the nice little talk that I put in the front of This Is America. That lady is such a fucking bitch. I'm going to say it. You can call him Chauvet. You know, I, I, work, I work for a company now that saying ma'am and accentuating with caps the word not got me in trouble. And gendering somebody. I gendered got me a talking to these are the same people she's okay that's okay to be an utter bitch the number one song on itunes is this let's go
hating us like we in Squid Games. Green light mandate, like he's insane. These times, people waking up to everything. Go Brandon, but we all know what the saying means. It's my ringtone. And to be quite honest, there's another one for, for Beget a Blow, another black rapper. He He's doing it. His favorability is below Trump's. Latest Quinnipiac poll. Another one came out. Literally, people favor Trump now. I mean, this guy is just a clown show. He's a 100% clown show. They know he's not capable to do the job. People are sick of his build back better. It, it It's just hard to imagine 81 million people voted for him. That's what they tell you. I mean... Senator Ron Johnson sums it up. They want higher gas prices so you won't drive. They want open borders so you won't be able to vote. They want massive spending so you're stuck with the government. They want people dependent on the government. That's their whole purpose. That's what they want to do. But we have this, and I'm going to play it as my media jerk off, this kind of spin. Well, I'm going to just play the bias. And in this cut, did you ever see a time during a conservative administration that you heard Chuck Todd, I'm going to play him by himself first, then you'll see the bumper for media jerk off. This kind of bias and people are okay for the right. Have you ever seen... Anybody on the media other than Hannity beg a president to pass unconstitutional shit. So here's just Chuck Todd. Welcome to Meet the Prince Stanley. I'm Chuck Todd. President Biden once again is hitting the road in an effort to build um, some public support for his agenda. It comes as the White House is signaling a growing impatience with the state of negotiations among Democrats in Congress to actually pass it. President is gearing up to deliver remarks later this hour in Connecticut to highlight his agenda's potential benefits on the issue of child care. It's just a critical piece of a multi-trillion dollar agenda that a lot of Democrats see as vital for working families' lives and vital for their own political fortunes as the party tries to hang on 
to those narrow congressional majorities in next year's midterms. And in a very real way, those midterms unofficially begin in just over two weeks in the state of Virginia and that gubernatorial race. It's a race which has often really been a pretty good foreshadower of, you, of sorts of what the following year's midterm environment is going to look like for both parties. And right now, it's a tight race in Virginia. So for the White House, for Democrats, and for the Democratic gubernatorial candidate Terry McAuliffe, there's an added sense of urgency to have these talks wrapped up by the end of this month, just as voters are casting their ballots. Let's get everybody in a room, lock the door. What do you need? What do you need? And let's get this thing done. You know, all these folks up here, you know, they love to go out and do their press conferences. Do your job. Vote and get this done. The White House is also signaling its impatience with the talks on Capitol Hill. And that, frankly, is a bit curious because it makes it look as if they're in the backseat in these negotiations. And it introduces a strange question for us to ask, but it is this. Who's in charge of the talks right now over Biden's agenda if it's not the White House and the president? Meanwhile, there are very few indications out there that a deal is close. Senators Manchin and Cinema still have fundamental disagreements with the size and scope of the plan. They don't even agree with each other, let alone the rest of the Democratic conference. Then there's Bernie Sanders. He's still pushing for the $3.5 trillion top-line number, even though the president, Speaker of the House, pretty much everybody else has acknowledged it's going to actually be, have to be lower to actually pass, but he hasn't given up on expanding Medicare benefits, which is extraordinarily costly, but that is a sticking point. And we still haven't seen them all in the same room to try to hammer out their differences. And frankly, until you see that, it's hard to see a deal coming together any time soon. Mike Memoli is following the president in Hartford, Connecticut for us as he tries to sell his agenda there. Leanne Caldwell is on duty on Capitol Hill. And also with us is somebody who's had his share of back and forth with Congress, former Obama White House Press Secretary Robert Gibbs. Mike, let me start with you. You know, this has been an interesting week here in Washington because the president largely had the town to himself, right? You had the Senate was out. The House was marginally in session. Um, and let's just say I thought he'd be more of a dominant presence this week than he was. But he is out there today selling his agenda. Yeah, that's right, Chuck. We've heard more urgent language from the White House podium. Jen Psaki saying uh, yesterday it's time to move forward with these negotiations the day before. She said that time is not unlimited, but we haven't necessarily seen that same urgency in the president's schedule by any means. We have been hearing for the last few weeks how the president was going to be hitting the road more to speak to the uh, American people about what was in his agenda and why it was so important to get it through. Well, this is just the second event focused on Build Back Better in the last two weeks. Last week he was in Michigan, obviously. There was also that canceled event that they postponed and rescheduled on vaccines. And so we haven't seen that same urgency. But the White House is staring some real and some self-imposed deadlines in the face now. And there is, I think, increased urgency. And that's why we are hearing from the White House that it's time to maybe knock a few heads as well. And and Chuck, one of those informal deadlines is, the, frankly, the Virginia election. And I think Terry right. McAuliffe has probably been on the phone with Gavin Newsom. And what did we see ahead of the California recall? President Biden, right. the administration, took some more urgent and some people thought overdue uh, stricter actions uh, as it relates to COVID and vaccine requirements right. uh, in, in the run up to that election. And, and we're now seeing a, the increased urgency from the White House in response to that urgency being conveyed 
from Terry McAuliffe as he looks at his campaign. The, one of the other big deadlines coming up, Chuck, is the uh, Glasgow Climate Summit. And yeah. the president wants to be able he to go some. to that summit yeah. saying, I've signed, we've, ha t we've taken these actions, and now we want you to do the same. And so beyond the political focus here at home, he also doesn't want to go empty-handed uh, on the world stage, especially given what, what we've seen in terms right. of his foreign policy record over the last few months as well, Chuck. Mike, why, why Connecticut? Is this for Rosa DeLauro, who obviously is a key player, and House Democrats? Is this something else going on? Why Connecticut? It might be more about Chris Dodd, his good friend from the Senate, who is dedicating the Dodge Center at the University of Connecticut today. Uh, but when you gotcha. see child care on the agenda, uh, you know also Rosa DeLauro, who's been the real champion of this for, for decades, right. uh, is part of that as well. Gotcha. Uh, the Chris Dodd event. That does help explain the travel schedule a little bit there. Mike Memoli on the road with the president in Hartford, Connecticut. We'll see you when we hear from the president. Thank you, Mike. All right, Leanne, I have to tell you, it was a little jarring yesterday to find out the White House was not happy with the state of negotiations, which means is Congress in charge of the negotiations? And if so, who's running it? Yeah, it's a good question, Chuck. And I'm not really sure. So usually Speaker Pelosi runs these negotiations, right? But we haven't really seen any public meetings. There hasn't been any public statements. And we're not really sure where things are landing. We do know that because there was a report in the New York Times yesterday that Senator Kirsten Sinema was in Europe fundraising for uh, the Democratic Party, uh, that uh, we received a statement from her office that did did not confirm that she was in Europe, but did say that phones are everywhere and that just this week, Senator Sinema has spoken to President Biden, Leader Schumer, and congressional Democrats. Notice she didn't mention Speaker Pelosi in that conversation or in that statement, but congressional Democrats are the ones, the moderates that she speaks to a lot, including people like Stephanie Murphy and Kathleen Rice and, and, uh, um, and, and others in that group. But there are seem to be no very for, you know public negotiations mm -hmm. happening at this right. stage. Senator Schumer put out a statement yesterday to his colleagues that was mostly focused on voting rights that they're going to vote on next week. He did reiterate once again that they hope to come to an agreement by the end of the month on this multi-trillion dollar bill. But he said that over and over again. This is just another way that he said it. Leanne, yesterday, the White House, we heard that, the, uh, that President Biden seems to now want to make sure that the bipartisan infrastructure bill is passed by the end of this month, regardless of where the rest of the negotiations are. Is, is that, has that uh, taken hold at all on Capitol Hill, or is that just aspirational hope? Well, the progressives have not said that that's okay and they have enough votes to block whatever happens and that's what they did last time. And so it's unclear that he has to work that out with the progressives and the progressives have not publicly said that they are okay with that check. All right, we'll find out. Leanne Caldwell on Capitol Hill Force. Leanne, thank you. All right, let me bring in Robert Gibbs. And Robert, I don't know about you, but I'm having a lot of 2009, 2010 flashbacks um, where you know, think about all the deadlines. You guys were going to get health care done by the 4th of July before the August recess. That's supposed to be a straight news show. Just straight. It was always a straight news show. And anybody who goes back at the podcast, this is kind of why I started a podcast. I watched Meet the Press go to David Gregory, 
who brought a magazine on air to try to get rid of guns. And then you have Mr. Chuck Todd saying, we're not going to bring science to, uh, climate deniers on. And then it just flows into every subject. He doesn't have conservatives on. Ever. One slipped on this week, though. John, I'm going to guess that you're going to agree with something Charlie Cook wrote. I should have like made Amy yeah, respond made to this, but I'm not. No, 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 no. We'll put because here's what Charlie wrote. Democrats push for way too much without having the political capital to make it stick. It's killing them on overreach. It's killing them on competence. If misreading a mandate is a sin in politics, pretending that you have one when you don't is a mortal sin. Is that the issue? In March, John Meacham conv convened a bunch of historians at the White House who said to Biden, you can be FDR, you can be LBJ. Lyndon Baines Johnson won election in 1964 with a 155 seat majority in the House and 159 <laughs> seat majority okay. and 69. Is that more than five? <laughs> and Sorry. 69 Democratic senators. And in 1965, they passed 70 major pieces of legislation. If you go to the Johnson Library, mm -hmm. there are 70 pens <laughs> lined up. Right. That's the great society. Joe Biden has a majority of, nobody even knows, is it three, is it five, is it four right. in the House? And a 50-50 Senate? Only a 50-50 Senate because of bizarre machinations yeah. by Trump in November and December to depress the Republican vote. Democrats went nuts in the winter. Yeah. They went crazy. They, they're, they're proposing, they were at the point of having $8 trillion of new spending with no consensus. Forget the Democratic yeah. base. Like, they, there was no mandate to do any of this from the- That's a rare truth bomb. That's just a rare truth bomb on there. They don't have a mandate. They don't have a majority. They don't have anything. They literally admitted, if you listen to the intro, they're just using COVID so they could change the economy forever so that people are dependent on government. But it's just not meet the press. It's everywhere. I am a politic, the media jerk-off of the week. Then you also sort of notice a change. And I think it, it sort of happens when you decide to leave the Today Show. And so when I was reading this, I wanted to ask you, do you think you changed? Do you, do you think the person that became so su successful in the Today Show became a different person when I you decided to leave? I don't really. I think the problem is probably I didn't change enough when I went to CBS. I was more of a product of the Today Show and NBC. And I think it was a real culture clash. Mm. Uh, I don't think people internally really accepted me. And I thought we were much further along when it came to sexism. Uh, because I enjoyed such a great position at the Today Show, I thought America was really ready mm. for a female anchor of the evening news. And I think we were just not as far along as I naively thought, I think. You mean the folks at CBS? Bo both internally, mm -hmm. but also externally. Um, you know, I'm not sure if the country 
for a female anchor. Maybe they weren't just ready for me as a female mm -hmm. anchor because of their perceptions of me. But I really went there to say a woman can do this job. Talking about journalism, and this is very much a journalism story, you did make an eye-opening revelation about an interview you did with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You decided to leave out newsworthy comments that she made on the subject of kneeling during the national anthem. Yeah. How did you justify that? It, it violates a cardinal rule of journalism. To well, do that. I think I think what people don't realize is we make editorial decisions like that all the time. And I chose to talk about this and put it in the book for a discussion. Um, I mentioned that I, it, it was a conundrum. Justice Ginsburg about Colin Kaepernick and taking a knee and how she felt about that. And I did include the fact that she said it was dumb and disrespectful. It was stupid and arrogant and quite a bit of what she said. There was another line that I thought was, I wasn't sure what she meant exactly. And I thought it was subject to interpretation. What I wish I had done is asked a follow up to clarify or just run it and let her clarify it later. But I think the, the, the most pertinent direct response to the question about Colin Kaepernick, I included. And that's why I raised it, because maybe I should have done the other sentence as well. Let me push you on it a little bit, because um, she did make those comments. You said in the book that you wanted to protect her. Yeah. So that's not an occasion where you're using that objectivity that's so important to us journalists. And, yeah. and the question is whether that undermines journalism at a time when reporters are under attack for bias like you know, that. I think Justice Brandeis says sunshine is the best disinfectant. And I think the more we can be transparent about the decisions we make and the more we can say maybe that wasn't the right one. Do you think the it better was off wrong we were. now that you look at it in the yeah, light of day? Yeah, I think I ultimately I think I should have included it. But I also think it's really important to look at what I did include. She had to make a statement afterwards saying her comments were harsh and dismissive. I think uh, I still believe I used the most critically important response. But I think you're right. It might have uh, illuminated even it even. Writer and editor Barry Weiss left her post at the New York Times last year, saying it was an illiberal environment, a culture where journalistic curiosity could not be pursued. Now, one year later, she has launched a uh, publication called Common Sense. Substack. She says she has over 100,000 subscribers, some of whom are already paying, even though all the content is still free. She says it's an escape from the madness of traditional media. And here is what she meant by that. You write, there are tens of millions of Americans who aren't on the hard left or the hard right who feel the world has gone mad. So in what ways has the world gone mad? Well, you know, when you have the chief reporter on the beat of COVID for the New York Times talking about how questioning or pursuing the question of the lab leak is racist, the world has gone mad. When you're not able to say out loud and in public that there are differences between men and women, the world has gone mad. When we're not allowed to acknowledge that rioting is rioting and it is bad, and that silence is not violence, but violence is violence, the world has gone mad. When we're not able to say that Hunter Biden's laptop is a story worth pursuing, the world has gone mad. When in the name of progress, young school children, as young as kindergarten, are being separated in public schools because of their race, and that is called progress rather than segregation, the world has gone mad. There hmm. are dozens of examples that I could share with, with you and with and your you viewers. And you often say, you say everyone aloud. Everyone sort of knows this. And
You say we're not allowed, we're not able. Who's the people stopping the conversation? Who are they? Um, people that work at networks, <laughs> frankly, like the one I'm speaking on right now, who try and claim that, you know, it was it was racist to investigate the lab leak theory. It was, but I mean, let's said just that take an CNN. example. But I'm just saying, that when you say allowed, I just think it's a provocative thing you say. You say, you say we're not allowed to talk about these things, but they're all over the internet. Well, what, I can Google them, Brian, I can find them everywhere. I've heard about every story you mentioned. So I'm just suggesting, of course, people are allowed to cover whatever they want to cover. But you and I both know, and it would be delusional to claim otherwise, that touching your finger to an increasing number of subjects that have been deemed third rail by the mm. mainstream institutions and increasingly by some of the tech companies will lead to reputational damage, perhaps you losing your job, um, your children sometimes being demonized as well. And so what happens is a kind of mm. internal self-censorship. This is something that I saw over and over again when I was at the New York Times. People saying to themselves, you know what, why should I die on that hill? Why should I take the three or four weeks that it takes to smuggle through an op-ed that doesn't suit the conventional narrative? I might as huh. well commission the 5,000th op-ed saying that Donald Trump is a moral monster. What's going on is the transformation of these sense-making institutions of American life. It's the news media, it's the publishing houses, it's the Hollywood studios, it's our universities, and they- So what should we do differently in concrete ways? Feels to me like every day there's this slow gathering storm. We see this democratic backsliding happen. But what should the nightly newscasts and the newspapers and the AP and Reuters do on a daily basis differently? It should cover that on a daily basis. So that's mm -hmm. that's my point, is that, you know, there was a couple of weeks ago, there was more coverage about the failing of a news outlet I had never heard of. What do you think it will take to get teachers the pay that they deserve? 
Well, I think it starts at the top, and I think Joe is saying we have to pay our teachers more. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we're getting more money to the schools. I don't know whether you've gotten the money from the American Rescue Plan or whether you felt its impacts yet. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and Joe has always, that's one of the things he ran on, and he knows. I mean, because I'm an educator, and he saw, you know, the hours that I put in, just like all these teachers. Mm -hmm. And then the states, the governors, and the, and the state legislators, I mean, give more money to teachers. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just the bottom line. Now, this was a big deal yesterday, guys, because they haven't been able to honor teachers at the White House because yeah. of COVID since 2020 and 2021. So these were the top, the teachers of the year, 2021, and then the two finalists. And believe me, this was such a big deal for them because they're there with a fellow teacher. Dr. Biden started the conversation by saying, welcome to you, my fellow colleagues. That's awesome. Uh, so I, I yeah. thought, so that was a very sweet moment. And you could tell people about what they were going to wear, what they were going to say. Tabitha that had that gorgeous cape. It was, uh, she had little drawings from kids who had signed it for, and then asked Dr. Biden to take a picture with the cape. He said, you know, the first lady has things to do, but she was so gracious and they were so, it was a very interesting conversation because they all have similar concerns and similar joys. At the end of the day, they all love being teachers. Yeah. You know what I say? Your president understands because there's a teacher in the White House. <laughs> yes, yes. You certainly have his ear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and what, what is your message to him? Well, I think I go home every single day and tell him about my students, about teachers, about what we're facing in our classrooms. And the thing I love about Joe is he listens and he has listened. And look at the American Rescue Plan and look at all the money he gave to schools and, mm -hmm. and for uh, social development and mental health, uh, things that are really important to teachers. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew he would be a great education president mm -hmm. and that's I was out there campaigning my heart yeah. out. <laughs> Dr. Biden what has frustrated you during this time during this pandemic? Well I guess you know not being able to be in the classroom like everybody yeah. else to see our students in person. Do you ever come home and you say you know it was a really tough day dear honey what, what you call him? <laughs> You know, Joe. Joe. Okay, Joe. Yeah, no, Joe, this, no, it's no, very no, difficult. <laughs> it's very difficult. Well, you could call him Joe. Yeah. Um, oh. It's very difficult. It would be very helpful if you would fill in the blank. Mm. Make sure that we have broadband across America mm. so that Thanks. all students have access yes. to technology. I love teaching because I'm able to give students confidence. Mm -hmm. If I can give them the confidence to believe in themselves, then I, you know, I... Let me ask you, in your book, you adopt the Trumpian term fake news, which, of course, has become part of the culture. So you're right. In 20, by 2020, the media were particularly camp... Or excuse me, let me do that again. The media were practically campaigning for Joe Biden, a level of collusion not seen even during the Obama era. Now, the word collusion goes a bit far for me, but the practically supporting part right on target. And you say it was an outgrowth of four years of Trump coverage. It was, um, I have just never seen anything like this. We saw, we've known bias exists for a very long period of time. You go back to Eisenhower to have Republican presidents complaining about it. But between 2016 and 2020, something else changed entirely. It was not just bias, but propaganda. It was invention of fake news based on nothing but anonymous sources. 
were refuted on the record by dozens of people, such as the lie that Donald Trump had claimed that um, he didn't go to Ayn Marn Cemetery for weather, which was what actually happened, but because he secretly hated dead American soldiers. That was such a lie that it got spread into like presidential debates. At the same time, the media were doing something that was the most horrific thing of the entire campaign, suppressing a story that would have hurt their favorite candidate, Joe Biden. There was legitimate news about the Biden family business that the media went out of their way to lie about, again, calling it Russian disinformation, and not cover when it was a very important that the American people know whether or not the person that they were thinking about electing had a, had a family business that was open to corruption by funding from foreign oligarchs or other people with nefarious interests. And the media just suppressed that story and lied about it. This is, this is you cannot have free and fair elections when you're in this kind of environment with our media. Now, Molly Hemingway sums it up. They were campaigning. I mean, I've tried for like an hour here to get this. Let me try to do it one more time. I'm going to try to open a new window. I want you to think that during the Trump presidency, a major person, well, we're going to have to listen to it live. I can't get this to work. Uh, let's fucking, uh, I got to watch a fucking ad for a second. An urgent message to anyone. Four, three, two, one. All right, and I'm going to turn it up. Here we go. That brings me to Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete and his husband, they are happy fathers, both of them, right? That's nice. Uh, very nice. But it's also incredibly strange that Pete Buttigieg, with such a big job, transportation secretary, in the middle of a transportation Supply chain crisis would take two months off. That's what he did, two months off. All this stuff going on. And by the way, <laughs> he took a good chunk of last year off as well. After he ran for president, he grew a beard. Now, he's getting killed for this. But I want you to understand, this is insane. All right, this is how they live. That thing that's a dude that was a health secretary, transgender person. Yeah, they, for the record, are now a four-star admiral, assistant health secretary. They just did it for demographics. Not qualifications, demographics. But that's the world they live in. Richard Grinnell, Buttleg is doubling down on secretly taking two months off of Secretary, Secretary of Transportation during a crisis and not announcing who was in charge while he was absent and then attacking people who questioned the decision for being homophobic. You got Lightfoot taking pictures, no mask. But then she literally says that anybody uh, who doesn't want to do the mask mandate are in insurrectionists. All at the same time. That, that's in the same week. Fact checkers trying to get ahead of misconception photos of empty grocery store sales shelves you won't need to worry about a treadmill you're gonna lose a lot of weight by starvation hey boo boo says here's a safe way in my hood today lower right picks or cat food chair shelf bear cat food my wife went on post to get meat it's even low Look how hard they're trying. U.S. National News. Mixed caption images of empty grocery store shelves are unrelated to current global supply chain. 
it became a Twitter trend to disprove what your eyes see. But yeah, a gay guy who didn't have a baby and his gay husband who didn't have a baby, they took two months off because it's woke. There is no crisis. It's in your head. Blue check. Fucking journalist. Extremism on the right is being a literal Nazi and extremism on the left is wanting to stop criminalizing poverty and holding police accountable. Whole thread. There's numerous happening now because people are starting to say, hey, wait a minute. Motherfuckers stormed the Capitol last week and the media didn't even cover it. We did. Civil liberties are being trampled by exploiting insurrection fears. Congress 1-6 committee may be the worst abuse yet. But what did we get? Uh, uh, Liz Cheney, a Republican grandstanded. Principally from my Republican colleagues. We all agree that America is the greatest nation on the face of God's earth. Truth, justice, and our Constitution have made America great. Almost every one of my colleagues knows in your hearts that what happened on January 6th was profoundly wrong. You all know that there is no evidence of widespread election fraud sufficient to have changed the results of the election. You all know that the Dominion voting machines were not corrupted by a foreign power. You know these claims are false. Yet former President Trump repeats them almost daily. And he has now urged Republicans not to vote in 2022 and 2024. This is a prescription for national self-destruction. I ask my colleagues, please consider the fundamental questions of right and wrong here. The American people must know what happened. They must know the truth. All of us who are elected officials must do our duty to prevent the dismantling of the rule of law and to ensure that nothing like that dark day in January ever happens again. For more now on this kidnapping in Haiti, let's bring in our White House correspondent, Mary Alice Parks. Mary Alice, it's great to have you in the studio. We do appreciate it. So much at stake here. I would imagine the Biden administration following this very closely. Yeah, you can imagine this is just a nightmare situation. So delicate. We don't have a new comment from the White House yet. The, the national security team instead directing us to a very brief comment from the State Department overnight. They just said that the welfare and safety of U.S. citizens abroad is one of their highest priorities. They are aware of the reports. But like you said, you can imagine the White House is turning all their attention on something like this. And, and as Phil laid out there, it's just been one crisis after another. The assassination of the president, the earthquake, the economic ruin uh, following the pandemic. And now Americans caught right in the middle of this. It only further complicates U.S. policy in that country as well. Absolutely. Following the assassination of the Haitian president in July, some Haitians called for U.S. troops to come there to the country to help stabilize the situation. Obviously, that didn't happen, but we know that the U.S. has, from time to time, after the assassination, after the earthquake, sent teams of officials there to the ground. You can imagine this makes their work so much harder. And it could also politically make it harder for the U.S. to turn away any Haitian migrants that arrive at the 
southern border. So many of them have been making the argument that it is just not safe on the ground in Haiti. And the fact that American lives are at risk, too, really a game changer in all of this. Uh, Mary Alice, thank you so much. It's the 18th of October, and we are back in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, where evacuation flights are continuing. This story is not over. There are thousands of American allies still stuck in the country, along with U.S. citizens and green card holders. Their safety and security is a major concern for the international community. Kabul's international airport remains a lifeline for Americans and others looking to escape the Taliban. Atla Nori is an engineer who lives in Maryland. He's got a green card, and his three-year-old son has an American passport. You can hear the voice. It will be excited, <laughs> and we are feeling great to return back to our their home and uh, our business and our work. Yeah, so also for the kids' school. For others, like this American citizen, waiting to board a Qatari jet to Doha, they say the international bodies will have to work with the Taliban to address many of Afghanistan's growing issues. There are common grounds that people could um, gather around that. And the uh, international community needs to find that common ground. The task of governing is an uphill battle for the Taliban that struggles to receive broad international support due to ongoing human rights violations, a lack of rights for women, and ruling through violence. The Taliban's acting foreign minister tells Fox News that change is coming, but that it will take time. The Taliban continues to make these empty promises. There is no problem in Afghanistan right now, such as security threats or political threats. People who are leaving maybe have economic problems. They can easily go and come back. You'll notice from our report today, the Qatari jet was carrying leadership from the Taliban as well as people trying to flee the group. The flight manifest really highlights the role that Qatar is playing in all of this, trying to manage a relationship with the Taliban while evacuating. You've got to inform people. The only cure for stupid is education. So get out of here. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You know, we've got a global problem, and China is a big contributor to that. We are too, and but we don't have much um, moral authority to say, you should be doing this if we're not taking action and deploying the technology that we need to deploy. So conservative radio host and vaccine skeptic Dennis Prager says he got COVID and that he did it on purpose. Listen to this. Good. It is infinitely preferable to have natural immunity than vaccine immunity. And that is what I hoped for the entire time. Hence, I so uh, engaged with strangers, constantly hugging them, taking photos with them, knowing that I was in making myself very susceptible to getting COVID which is indeed as bizarre as it sounded, what I wanted. All right, joining me now, Brian Stelter, CNN chief media correspondent and anchor of reliable sources. We should make clear, Sanjay and other doctors we talked to, they will say this is an awful yes, idea. Yes, and this is own the libs to the illogical extreme. He is not the only right-wing radio host that pushes this narrative that you should go out and get COVID. Now, he says it actually has happened to him and that he's doing okay. And, of course, he's taking one of those cocktails of drugs that's recommended by fringe doctors. But this is really about owning the libs. It's about whatever Biden says, whatever the government says, they do the opposite. It's contrarianism that makes people sick. And if Colin Powell's death yesterday can be a reminder to everyone that we are still all in this together. We need to reduce overall case counts in this country and around the world. 
so that the immunocompromised have a better chance, so that everyone has a better chance of staying healthy. And then you have these people preaching the exact opposite. Yeah, I mean, you would think that keeping people healthy is everyone's priority. I would have thought so uh, up until 18 months ago, right? We started with a slogan of we are all in this together. And then you have so many of these right wing media figures trying to pull us all apart. Look at some of the outlier examples like Puerto Rico, where, you know, there's been a lot of attention recently on why Puerto Rico's vaccination rates are so much higher than they are here in the mainland. It's because you don't have that right wing radio nonsense. You don't have that political, you know, that partisanship that's that's uh, that's poisoned everything. Uh, and, and figures like Prager are a part of that problem. By the way, the same thing overnight on Fox News. You know, this narrative from Tucker Carlson and others that, well, Colin Powell's death shows you there's trouble with the vaccine. You know, they, it is this day in, day out narrative that actually is prolonging the pandemic. It is it is that simple and that awful. They are prolonging the pandemic. Right, we have Will Kane, who was on yesterday. Again, when Powell died, all we knew initially was that he passed away and that it was from complications from COVID. COVID. It turned out. He multiple, multiple myeloma, Parkinson's disease, things that absolutely weaken your immune system. He was due for a booster. He couldn't get yeah. the booster because of the condition. So absolutely explains what happened. Can there. I say that's a reminder that for, you, know, you don't always know everything right away. It took a couple hours to find out about Powell's medical history. It took a couple hours to know all the facts. And the people who jump to conclusions and make their assumptions, that's part of the problem. When you don't know everything, you shouldn't make assumptions. And there will be, again, doctors who say this shows that we should all get vaccinated. It's all the more reason to get vaccinated to protect people like Colin Powell, who were immunocompromised. Right, let's protect each other. But sadly, this conversation is not what's airing on Fox. Now, every once in a while, there is a doctor that says the right thing on air. For the most part, it's the Tucker Carlson's of the world. They get all the airtime, and they are dragging us backward. The right is, is sort of famous for making culture wars work. Do you think, Charlie, that the other side of the Holocaust is a bridge too far, or is this where we're heading? Well, of course, it's a bridge too far, you know, and, it, and it's easy to beat up on the administrator here and, and she's going to get dragged for all of that. But I think that the focus ought to be on the law and the fact that the teachers are terrified. They don't know what's what's going to happen. You know, conservative legislators used to talk a lot about the unintended consequences of legislation. What are the unintended consequences of this heavy handed legislation that the teachers don't know what books they can assign. So here we have the party of small government in the business of banning ideas, of banning books. And then of course, creating a situation where you go, hey, if you're dealing with anything controversial, you know, you might get in trouble, including if you teach a book on the Holocaust. Look, I don't know what that means. What is the other side of the Holocaust? Are you gonna assign uh, fourth graders uh, Mein Kampf? Uh, are you gonna make them listen to Seb Gorka's radio show? I just don't know what the, um, you know, what, what she actually had in mind. But again, this is exactly what you get when you have politicians playing culture war and then trying to ram that into badly thought out draconian legislation. And by the way, you know, um, I am actually old enough. Nicole, maybe you can help me with this. I mean, I, I know that Republicans in Texas have been conservative for a long time, but there was a time when when conservative Republicans in Texas were not absolutely batshit crazy. And I think this is the question. <laughs> At what point? I mean, Texas Republicans used to be kind of respectable. I mean, you had the Bushes, you had people like, you know, John Conley, who switched
And it's so sad to hear that he was scheduled for his booster shot this week when he got ill and had to go to the hospital. But given how complicated we now know his medical history was, would the booster shot have saved his life for somebody with that profile? Well, it might have helped, but let's take a step back and look at his risk factors. So the first is that he is already medically fragile, meaning because of age being 84, and also we know that risk is additive. And so having Parkinson's, having multiple myeloma, having chronic medical conditions means that for somebody else, it, they could have had a mild breakthrough infection. But for somebody who is medically vulnerable, that could have led to a much more severe outcome. The other thing is multiple myeloma itself, a blood cancer, results in people potentially not mounting the same type of immune response as somebody who is otherwise healthy. And so there was a study published in July that found that patients with multiple myeloma, about 45% of them, only 45% of them, um, will mount an adequate immune response after vaccination. And so that's why this is the group that is extremely vulnerable. They are recommended to get a booster shot, but even with a booster, they may still not have as much protection in order to prevent from severe outcomes. And this ultimately is the the reason why we all have to be vaccinated because this is really about all of us. Yes, the vaccine does protect you, but it protects you even better if everybody around you is vaccinated and we get vaccinated as healthy people in part to protect the most vulnerable among us. I played it all right with it. We still people of Afghanistan, they're covering the fuck up. We still have motherfucking people saying your voters are stupid. America's a piece of shit. They're still saying Fox is weaponizing. The conservatives are shitheads. Colin Powell would have lived if he had a booster. Washington Post acknowledged uncomfortable inflation. Democrats amend IRS bank monitoring proposal to include every person over 10,000. Liz Cheney doesn't care about that. Bill McGune still asking, hey, where? what's up with those whips that didn't happen? There, there was no whips. You're full of shit. There's no whips. Nobody was whipping. We haven't had done an investigation. The media's not covering that. They don't fucking care. Why would they care? Why? Economy's going to shit. Everything's falling apart. They're still playing 1-6. DeSantis. Must be stopped. New York now has more than double Florida's rate for COVID. You don't hear that in the media. More than 300 black churches across VA will hear this. So McAuliffe can win. Greetings, everyone. So when I was growing up, we sang in the choir at Oakland's 23rd Avenue Church of God. We sang hymns about how faith combined with determination will see us through difficult times. And we were taught that it was our sacred responsibility to raise our voice and lift up the voices of our community. One of the most significant ways I believe that we can each use our voice is through our vote. So Virginians, you have the opportunity now to raise your voice through your vote because it's election time. As you know, this is an important election coming up on Tuesday, November 2nd, and early voting is already underway. I believe that my friend Terry McAuliffe is the leader 
Virginia needs at this moment. Terry McAuliffe has a long track record of getting things done for the people of Virginia. When he was governor, in the wake of the recession, you'll remember, he brought 200,000 jobs to Virginia. Incomes went up and unemployment went down in every city and county in the state. And now, Terry McAuliffe is stepping up again with a clear vision about how to rebuild Virginia's economy for the future. To raise the minimum wage, to make health care more affordable, to give every child a world-class education. Virginians, you deserve a leader who has a vision of what is possible and the experience to realize that vision. Terry McAuliffe is that leader. In 2020, more Virginians voted than ever before, and because you did, you helped send President Joe Biden and me to the White House. This year, I know that you will send Terry McAuliffe back to Richmond. So early voting has already started, and this is the first year that you can vote on Sunday. So please vote after today's service. And if you cannot vote today, make a plan to go vote. Go to IWillVote.com. They closed churches for fucking two years. But that's how they're going to do it. Jonathan Turley. Vice President Kamala Harris has taped an endorsement of McAuliffe and has been played in hundreds of African-American churches around the state. The problem is the Johnson Amendment makes such political pitches in churches a violation of federal law. The IRS warns that such violations will not be tolerated because attack-exempt groups are absolutely prohibited from directly or indirecting participating or intervening in any political campaign. Putting aside any violation, it's notable that Democrats use the opposition to the Johnson Amendment by former President Donald Trump as a rallying cry in the last election. That was before McAuliffe ran into trouble and Biden won. She's not covering that. Grinnell College Poll. Half the country disapproves the job Joe Biden's doing as president. Only 37% approve. Joe Biden won the presidency in 2020 with 54% of independents. He's now at 28 at the 2024 election where today Biden and Trump would both get 40% of the vote with 14% saying they would vote for somebody else. But New York Board of Health declares racism a public health because that's really important. And then I started in on the column, pal. Sometimes people are unfairly judged, plus remembered by the simple worst thing they ever did, but sometimes it's completely warranted. Al Jazeera. In 2003, Colin Powell made the Bush administration cate the UN security. I remember writing a piece explaining why Cubans in Miami celebrated the death of Fidel Castro while he wrought havoc and tragedy on millions, but even Castro did not destroy as many lives as Colin Powell. Danny Rivero. Lefty troll, so pathetic, even Twitter won't verify him. Colin Powell didn't die because he was vaccinated. He died because you weren't. Anna Navarro. Many Republicans will say poignant words about C. Powell today. As a reminder, Powell called Trump a liar, who skirted the Constitution, said he no longer called himself Republican because of 1-6, honoring him by standing for truth and supporting January 6th committee. Just had to do that. Chris Saliza, the guy who's known for for the millionth time. Journalists don't take sides. His piece, the Colin Powell Republicans no longer exist in the Republican Party. But what's going to happen? Uh, all this, CNN's going to do another town hall. 
with Biden only. And then the guy who took two months off instead of doing his job, he says this is why he can't get eggs. Well, certainly a lot of the challenges that we've been experiencing this year will continue into next year, but there are both short-term and long-term steps that we can take to do something about it. Look, uh, part of what's happening isn't just the supply side, it's the demand side. Demand is off the charts. Retail sales are through the roof. And if you think about those images of uh, ships, for example, waiting at anchor on the West Coast, you know, every one of those ships uh, is full of record amounts of goods that Americans are buying uh, because demand is up, because income is up, uh, because the president has successfully guided this economy out of the teeth of a terrifying recession. What the fuck? It goes back to what I say every podcast, and I know it's annoying. They think they know better than you. Just shut up, you fucking rube. Eat cake. Fuck off. We don't care if you starve. We got our caviar. We're rich. You're not. Go fuck yourself. We went to Oberlin, which we'll cover in the woke. But before we do, let's have a great Morning Joe soundbite where they're just fucking everything they're about to say is the opposite of what they said about Trump. And the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection will convene tomorrow evening to vote on adopting a contempt report over former Trump advisor Steve Bannon's refusal to comply with a subpoena. President Biden weighed in on Friday on whether the Justice Department should prosecute those who defy such subpoenas. What's your message to people who defy congressional subpoenas on the January 6th committee? I hope that the committee goes after them and uh, holds them accountable. Should they be prosecuted by the Justice I do, yes. The DOJ responded with a statement that underscored its wall of separation from the White House, saying the Department of Justice will make its own independent decisions in all prosecutions based solely on the facts and the law, period, full stop. Uh, Jonathan Lemire, uh, the vice uh, or the president, uh, came out and was making, it seemed, uh, was making recommendations or at least giving his opinion to what the Justice Department should do. Uh, We saw very quickly the difference in the Justice Department's uh, now and under Donald Trump. Uh, They came out immediately and said, fine, have your own opinions. We're going to make the decision on our own. Yeah, that's right. I was among those reporters on the South Lawn of the White House when the president said that. It was a little surprising, but let's be clear here. This is him uttering his opinion. This is very different than what Donald Trump used to do when he was in office, which he tried to use the Department of Justice as his personal lawyer, uh, lawyer firm, uh, and going after his political opponents. So, and DOJ wanted to make that clear, and the White House has, has said so over the weekend as well, that they want, there's a bright line here, they say, between the West Wing uh, and, and Main Justice, and they're not going to interfere. And that's been the tone from Uh, this administration from the start, uh, that they felt like President Biden has said that one of the more damaging legacies of the Trump administration was the fact that Americans lost faith in institutions with Department of Justice right near the top with the way that Jeff Sessions and Bill Barr uh, ran the place and that he wants to make sure that they're independent and they have no interference and that that has been their tone throughout this process. That said, January 6th is something this White House cares obviously about. Uh, That's why they would not let former President Trump use executive 
executive privilege uh, to, to help uh, the, his allies who have been called before uh, the select committee in the House. Uh, and he himself may, Trump, uh, face the same fate. There are deliberations right now happening in the committee. Uh, and they feel like this is something they want the investigation to be thorough and fair, not just to bring those to justice, but of course to send some sort of message that behavior like this won't be tolerated again uh, with more elections on the horizon and real fears about what everything is racist everything is racist according to me everything is racist everything is racist everything is racist according to me everything is racist our next guest was 17 years old when an unwanted pregnancy landed her in a texas courtroom before a judge that is because she did not have the required parental consent for a minor to get an abortion. So as if on trial, she had to plead her case. Veronica Granado joins me now. And Veronica, thank you so much for coming on. I'm sure that this was one of the most difficult decisions of your life. Tell us about it. Do you have any regrets about having an abortion? Um, I absolutely have no regrets. And actually, that's a, a great question because um, a lot of people assume that, you know, abortion is something to regret or something that is, you know, extremely traumatic. Um, the only, I would say, traumatic part in my case was having to go through this extremely difficult process, you know, going in front of a judge in a criminals go through. So it felt like I was a criminal. Um, but other than that, my abortion saved my life. It allowed me to go to college and become an engineer and pursue the dreams that I had um, before I got pregnant to continue that after my pregnancy. And if you hadn't gotten it, what do you think your life would have been like then? Um, it would have definitely been um, a lot harder. I'm not sure if college would still be in the question for me because as a teen, um, as a coming from a working class family, it was difficult to get resources to be able to support me going to college as well as um, supporting myself. And so I'm not sure if that would have been in the question, but I know that I would have needed to get a job and kind of push college aside for a long while before that happened. The process that landed you in court can take many weeks and with the six week limit under current Texas law, um, you would lose that option of a legal abortion. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, that's a great question because uh, for me, it's just an extremely terrifying and um, a terrifying situation because in my case I found out that I was pregnant about six weeks and the judicial bypass process took me two weeks so even though I found out as early as early as I possibly could the process forced me to take an additional two weeks to be able to actually get that procedure done and so for a lot of people six weeks is a lot earlier than they are able to find out they are pregnant and so for me I was fortunate enough to find it that early on but in the age of SB8 and what's been going on now, it's going to make it impossible to be able to obtain an abortion within six weeks. What was going through your mind as you stood in front of the judge who would make the most important decision of your life? Yeah, um, that's a, a great question. It's extremely relevant because the point of a judicial bypass process is just to intimidate teens in situations like I was and to make them feel that they're doing something wrong. Well, tonight, the National School Board Association is taking extraordinary action, sending an SOS to the White House and law enforcement. Members have been berated at meetings and threatened online over COVID safety protocols. Here's CBS's Jeff Pegues. School board officials are calling for help tonight. You cowards. 
writing to President Biden, the National School Boards Association asked for help investigating the violent incidents and suggested the FBI monitor threats to board members like actions to domestic terrorism. The impact of the pandemic on public schools is creating this, all this heightened rhetoric around the nation. And unfortunately, in some places, it's leading to threats and actual incidents of violence. Former Nevada school board member Kurt Thigpen said that he resigned after the constant harassment over email, phone, and social media made him think about suicide. He cited the January 6th insurrection as a trigger for the unruly behavior. Across the country, schools are facing increased violence and threats, stemming in part from people frustrated by mask and vaccine mandates. This morning, the National School Boards Association is calling for federal action, describing the attacks against staff and students as a new form of domestic terrorism. The group calling on the Biden administration to provide federal assistance to local law enforcement agencies to monitor and prevent future threats. The um, Attorney General's memorandum is focused on, on threats, on intimidation. So do you see parents as a threat? I, you I see don't. parents asking. But Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark says public servants are under attack. She says the Justice Department stands by its recent memo directing the government to do more to protect school board members from what it sees as an escalating threat of violence. The government even wants people to report threats to the FBI's National Threat Operations Center, a group traditionally tasked with monitoring terror threats. Parents that are fighting back. Parents, including a former journalist turned activist, tell Fox they have no plans to stay quiet. All we want is to protect our kids because we are parents. We are mama bears and papa bears. We are. No Let's turn out to new developments in a story we first brought you last week. A school board meeting in South Lake, Texas, getting heated after our reporting on a top administrator's controversial comments on the Holocaust caught on tape. The firestorm coming after the district gained attention nationally over its diversity plan. Here's Antonia Hilton. You say that I'm divisive, you're divisive. In South Lake, tensions high yet again. At a I was subject to a rash of bullying, almost all of which, which was anti-Semitic in nature. I received everything from jokes about my nose uh, to gas chambers. Jake Berman, former South Lake student who is Jewish, opened up about past bullying so severe he says he contemplated suicide his parents eventually pulling him from the school. The blame is right here in this room. The meeting, the first time residents could publicly raise concerns after the district sent teachers guidance to vet all books, instructing them to not allow singular narratives that could be considered offensive. Please help restore my faith in this district and in the school board. All of it in response to a new Texas law prohibiting teachers from offering perspectives that could make students feel anguish or guilt. Obtained exclusive secretly recorded audio. In it, the director of curriculum, Gina Petty, told educators to balance books about the Holocaust with an opposing view. Make sure that if, if, if you have a book on the Holocaust, that you have one that has opposing, that has other. How do you oppose the Holocaust? Gina Petty did not respond to messages requesting comment. In response to Petty's remark, Carol's superintendent issued an apology, stating there are not two sides of the Holocaust and pledging to work with his staff to clarify the policy. Parents uh, expressed concern about the controversy. The teacher who was reprimanded over the book, those teachers who recorded the training session, and the administrator are all victims of this toxic environment. Berman urging more needs to be done to protect students and teachers. 
This is a crossroads for the state and for this district. One path is an opportunity to lead and be on the right side of history. The other will cost you and your children a quality education. A message he hopes leads to a brighter. Everything is racist. I'm not going to let people have abortions. Fucking racist. Everything's fucking racist with these people, except for real racism. It fucking kills me, and they don't even want to cover the truth on any of this stuff. Like, they suppressed a rape. Angry, scared, and confused, Overland student anxiety compounded by the fact that a radiator installer might be cisgender. Students at Overland, which cost 80000 a year to attend, are angry and scared that the low-paid servants sent to fix the radiator are cis men. Perfect illustration of how shitty identity politics is. Literally, I'm not even going to read this because you've probably seen it. If you watch Gutfeld, you did. Um, let me just read an excerpt because this is just... I'm really going to give you an update on the radiator project starting tomorrow, blah, 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 blah. They were told these people are going to come. I had not been contacted about any sort of radiator installation before this email, so right away the word update stood out to me as untrue. I grew concerned reading a second line, which informed me that I had less than 24 hours of prayer for arrival of installation crew. I know it's further perturbed by the ambiguity of a period of time. In general, I'm very adverse to people entering my personal space. The anxiety was compounded by the, ah, fuck it. Let's bring back an old tried and true. Let's get the violin. In general, I'm very adverse to people entering my personal space. This anxiety, anxiety, the left, the fucking these kids and their anxiety. My kids got that too. I, I'm so, I got so much anxiety. Was compounded by the fact that the crew will be strangers. And they were more likely to be cisgendered men. Bum, bum, bum. Baldwin College is a home of women and trans collective. The college website describes the dorm as a closeness community and provides women and transgender persons with a safe space for discussion. Hey, hey, listen up there, June bug. Those dudes got cock. They're just wearing dresses. I was angry, scared, and confused. Why didn't the college complete the installation over the summer? The building was empty. I considered reaching out to Matos, but what could I say? The college is unlikely to address any of my concerns. The next day, I waited apprehensively. The worker began installing the common spaces. I could see immediately they were all men. Men, them bastards. It was clear that the college had not made a special request that made workers not be allowed onto the upper floors of Baldwin. Predicting when they would reach my room was pure guesswork. I was trying to anticipate whether I would be in class when they arrived or I'd have to welcome strangers. When the insistent, not insistent, they would, this is like AOC, I was almost raped by those people six blocks away. Eventually came, I scrambled to get my mask on and repeatedly shouted, Coming through the door, four or five construction workers stood outside, accompanied by someone who I could only assume by his neat polo and clipboard had to be an emissary of the college. We stared at each other for a few moments before I moved aside and allowed the workers to enter. The emissary began answering platitudes that the work wouldn't take long and encouraged me to prop open the door. I asked meekly if I could actually not have a radio installed in my dorm. I knew the answer would be no. I left for class, and by the time I come back, they'd appear to be done, though the polo man warned me that they would return later in the week. I couldn't help but think that through, though there were other dorms affected by the installation, Baldwin College is one of the worst places for it to occur. There are myriad reasons to want to be housed in Baldwin College, but many, myself included, 
Choose to live there for an added degree of privacy and a feeling of safety and protection. A significant portion of students choose to live in Baldwin because they are victims of sexual assault or abuse. Have suffered past invasion of privations of privacy or have some other reason to fear cisgendered men. When I asked other Baldwin Reds how they felt about the whole debacle, some responded with the usual complaints about my any hardware project. The mess, the noise, the suddenness. But others admitted they weren't entirely comfortable with the way the installation had been handled and the fact that they were subjected to the whims of the contractors. Oh. My. God. This is the same kind of college like University of Michigan paid Ibram X. Kendi, $20,000 an hour to tell you you're all fucking racist. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, sounds sounds like it makes sense to me. Luke Losiak notes local VA news outlet leaving key point out of the Bourne Lowndes County school rape story, and it's the same that mainstream media did. They didn't talk about the rapes. It's just a bunch of fucking white supremacists. Not all heroes wear capes. WAPO editor whining about massless man. Here we go. In Madison, Wisconsin, by now I should know better, but I get in an elevator. I stop on a lower floor. Man steps in unmasked. Sign in elevator says mask required. Me getting out. You know it would be really nice if you wore a mask. Man, I don't care what you think. America 2021. The entire world said he's a hero. Exclusive. Seattle Elementary School cancers Halloween over equity the district claims that black male students don't celebrate halloween and marginalizes them instead the school will provide thematic units to the study of fall one parent is sick of the wokeness he called this morning you know this just seems like grandstanding on behalf of the principal and the staff who are predominantly white in alliance with spc's unwavering commitment to students of color specifically african-american males only them which are cisgendered also Oh, but they're black cisgendered. Okay. The staff is committed to supplanting the pumpkin parade. Not the only one. Jesse Singal had not heard of any school canceling Halloween celebrations for inclusivity reasons other than until Herzog told me about this today. Mentioning multiple examples, now an email from the wealthy Boston suburbs. And this is what the email says. Let's blow that fucker up because... I got to hear how pumpkins are racist. Dear fifth grade families, the fifth year grade is off to an amazing start. Fifth graders, blah, 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 shut the fuck up. And some of you know, for many years, blank on the school day closest to Halloween, fifth graders have worn their Halloween costumes to school and paraded through the school. It is an event that many students enjoy. However, we must have several school community members who do not celebrate Halloween and are upset by the costumes or for whom purchasing a costume is a hardship. Because remember, it was all the white people that that wanted to be Black Panther, which is a good thing because they want to be a black character, but they were also racist because the black kids couldn't afford it because their parents are doing fucking crack. As a school that believes deeply in making sure everyone in Welcome included, we will no longer invite Halloween costumes to school. That being said, we know that our fifth graders are looking forward to doing something fun and special at the end of the month. We are too. We are shifting the new tradition. Fifth grade blank, the fifth grade team has planned an afternoon of fun activities that are not racist. 
As I mentioned on the podcast, another really good example of exclusivity and unfairness is the way property taxes funds public schools and they make stupid decisions like that. But that's not even the worst for the week. Australia, new biking laws. Bikers can't display tattoos. What the fucking fuck happened to those people down under? They've had too much shrimp on the body? What are you doing? Then we get the good people. The spectator. Having a child is the grandest act of climate destruction I can easily commit. Todd Woman, from it. About four years ago, my wife and I, or both in our 30s, briefly thought we were having a baby. For the next few nights, my dreams were of nuclear flashes lightening up the sky, of the earth cracking open, and the waves lapping at the front door. Humans are swiftly making the planet uninhabitable. Why would we want to bring another human being into the world? I'll admit that my climate anxiety is as melodramatic as it is severe, but polls show that I'm not alone. And if you have a baby, you're not only killing the planet, you're a racist. I'm sure it's somewhere in there. Delta says they're not going to have divisive mass mandates because they watched Southwest implode. The Chicago Sky overcame a 14.2nd half deficit to beat the Phoenix Mercury and win their first WNBA title. New Phoenix players have declined to do media. They already left on the bus. The Phoenix Mercury players declined to come to the post-game press conference. We asked the WMEA comms if they're going to be fine. They said it's an involving situation. Double blah and nothing like this had happened in their career. Damn, what the fuck? For a league always clamoring for media attention, this is not good. This doesn't do anything to help grow the game. I keep trying to reserve judgment on this until I find out why, except, well, it doesn't sound like they feel like they're explaining it right now. Welp, and that was a huge thing because there was too many white people on Phoenix. Antarctica, coldest winter on record, doesn't disprove global warming. Global warming may lead to practically irreversible Antarctic melting. That came last year. Now they've had the coldest on record. But yeah. Okay. And then we have this. Central Florida talking with young college students about women's rights here in America and abroad. Do college students think that women are oppressed here in the United States of America? And what happens when they find out how women are treated under the Taliban in Afghanistan? Let's find out. Would you say that women are treated unfairly in the United States? Yes, I would say so. Yes. I've quit so many jobs because of the way I was treated at work. Definitely. I think that there's a lot of like institutional factors that play into that especially when you think about just like like unequal pay we're all we already have a lower pay wage even if we're overly qualified for the for for the position there's still a lot of traditional i guess you could say like perspectives on like what a woman should do and what a woman shouldn't do yeah there are definitely some unfair treatment in some aspects would you say that women are oppressed here yes (laughs) yeah Yeah, absolutely. Um, But it's primarily, of course, there's the intersection of not just being a woman, but also being a woman of color or a poor woman or an immigrant. Yeah, I mean, there are things that make it just, there are things that make it hard. Would you say it's hard to be a woman in the United States of America? Yeah, yeah, so hard. Yes, I do. Yes. (laughs) Um, It is, it is, yeah. 
20 years ago, we first invaded Afghanistan after 9-11. But before the U.S. troops invaded Afghanistan, the Taliban was in control. And under the Taliban, women weren't allowed to have a job. They weren't allowed to get an education. They weren't allowed to hold a position in government. They were being beaten and killed under that government. We drove them out, and since then, you know, life for women in Afghanistan improved greatly because of U.S. presence. Now that the Taliban has once again invaded, many are fearing that women are going to be treated the same way as they were 20 years ago. Women already being beaten and killed on the streets. What is your first reaction to this? It makes me very nervous for especially the young girls growing up who might not be able to get an education. Something that we should think about is refugees coming to the United States and maybe being more open about letting these people find asylum here. Face says it all. Unless you're just going to take away their hard work that they earn to get those positions because it opposes their personal views. If they worked hard for that, who do you who do you think you are just coming there and just shh, too bad, stay in the house while the man does all the work? Like what? Terrible. <laughs> Honestly, I, I don't know what more to say. It's kind of a, like a really like extreme version of like sexism and misogyny. It's awful. I think that the U.S. should take in as many refugees as they can. Looking at everything that women are dealing with right now, what they're going to deal with once the Taliban becomes even stronger, does that kind of change your perspective about how women have it here in the United States? Yeah, like it could be worse here. It could be like as bad as that, but um, that is definitely easier for us to be a woman here compared to that, yeah. Ooh, see, I feel like both both parties are oppressed. I don't want to say one has it worse than the other, but it is a. So you wouldn't you wouldn't say that being beaten and killed is worse than maybe just having a lower wage? No, no, no. That's why I'm like, ooh, I feel so because it's like yeah, they're both forms of oppression, but it is that is a lot worse than what we're going through. Yeah, yeah, we have it better. We do. I think it does. I mean, compared to what's happening in Afghanistan, I. I mean, I do have more basic rights. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, we still got it a lot better than many other women in other countries around the world. You know, obviously in other areas, it's a lot worse. Like with that situation now that I know, like obviously there's not as much as to complain about here than over there. Do you think we have it pretty good here? Mm. Ooh, that feels like that contradicts what I say about but it's the truth though that's a good question because you're not you you have a very fair point we do have it better here than we do in afghanistan in general so i'm like that's a good question but i feel like it contradicts what i just said do you think we have it pretty good here yeah yeah we have it pretty good here yeah it's definitely better than how it used to be and better than a lot of other places i guess yeah i would i mean people aren't being like murder just for being women on the street. Does it make you appreciate being a woman in America more? Yeah, a lot more. Uh, we still have a certain amount of privilege that we hold being in this country where we don't have to fear necessarily beaten, beaten every day or, or killed just for being a woman or going to school. So is and, and this is why Build Back Better is going to put more resources into that is that we should allow people with disabilities to fully participate in society. <laughs> that should be the goal, um, our collective goal. And then the question becomes, well the campus reform is a great summation of what's wrong with every one of these people from Oberlin to the mainstream media. They don't see the world. They think they know everything. And then they just are ignorant as fuck. Then Kamala laughing about disabled Zelda, a Grabiel, we should allow bitch. Stop, please. 
I don't need your damn permission or government intervention to be a part of society and do what I need can do. How dare you act as if I need your say-so or government intervention to be a part of life? I hear the term ableist thrown around a lot. Sometimes it's for a good reason, and sometimes it's just to make someone a victim. Nothing, in my opinion, though, is more ableist than government or anyone saying whether I can or cannot participate in society or saying that I need them to function. I don't need your damn okay. My disabilities don't mean I need government okay or help or live a part of a society. My disabilities don't mean I need someone else's okay to exist or be a part of life. This is disgusting. And it totally is. Which is before we do the last article for the day, I wanted to do a little comedy from Greg Gutfeld. Supply chain's been backed up for months. We've got Black Friday right around the corner. I don't know what we're going to do. Honestly, I'm out of ideas. The only thing I can think of is to ask Secretary Pete. (laughs) (laughs) He's got some unbelievable ideas. I know, his calm demeanor really puts me at ease. I'm so glad Biden picked him. Joe Mackey, thoughts on the late, great Johnny Carson? Huge fan. Uh, He could really connect with people, and he was so prolific over so many years. What a body of work. He inspired me. Thanks for joining us. Did we get it? Yep. Good. Hey, you guys aren't going to make me look bad, are you? (laughs) No, 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 no. Tonight on the Chess News Network... Joe Mackey, thoughts on the late Ted Bundy? <laughs> Huge fan. He could really connect with people. And he was so prolific over so many years. Such a body of work. He inspired me. Joe Mackey, inspired by Ted Bundy. I'm David B. Brooks for the Chess News Network. Back to you, Craig. In a bubble wrap to keep you protected in the real world. Hi, we got a call about a broken radiator in the storm. Whoa, 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 okay, well I'm the RA here. Nobody told me they were sending cisgendered men. Uh, I'm gonna have to ask you a couple of questions first. Um, how do you feel about non-binary relationships? Oh, one time my girlfriend's husband whacked me with that two by four. No, okay, um, have you at least checked your privilege? We're here to check the gas line to the boiler. Guys, look. At this place, we're trying to dismantle the foundation of patriarchy. We don't do foundation work, but we know a guy. (laughs) Okay, man, look, we just want to level the playing field. It'll be level, we got a leveler. Look, I can't let you in here. This place is going to explode with rage. If you don't let us in, it will explode with gas. Too freaking funny. Gotta love me some good. Gutfeld. Larry O'Connor shares his personal insane battle with Facebook censors. You can't make this up. Five years ago, I posted this picture to make fun of cowboy fans because they're cowboy fans. Today, Facebook notified me that I had to remove it because it's a post about self-harm or suicide. They just want to suppress you. Listen to the view. I'll see. So was that explanation enough, or will the optics of seeing them (laughs) 
have their mask in their hands as they're leaving, knowing there's press outside. Is that going to continue to freak people out about the safety message? You know, you know can I just say, I love this right-wing uh, BS that goes on on Fox News. All they do is tell you, don't wear a mask, don't get vaccinated. And now uh, they see, oh, my goodness, Joe Biden's in here. He's triple vaxxed already. He was just eating. He's going to put it on in two seconds. And all of a sudden, the mask police, police come out of the woodwork at Fox. Maybe this they kid need to Peter, come out of Washington, D.C., because I know there's a lot of folks uh, in... <laughs> in the buildings that are not wearing masks. Maybe they should police that also. In, in, in the Fox News building? No, no, in Where? Washington, D.C. Oh, you yeah. know, a lot of Republicans are not wearing masks. Yeah, but the hypocrisy but is... that's is the a, point. You know that he's not in a, in a room that hasn't been double-checked for vaccination. Right. Everybody in that room has been vaccinated, and he's on his way out, supposedly, out the door. Mm -hmm. I know that when I get to the door, I put the mask on. But you're also being, you know, someone's got a camera and they're waiting for, you know, so sometimes you miss it. But, yeah. th th you know, I know that if he's in that room, they have checked and quadruple checked. Mm -hmm. The people who are cooking, the food that was cooked has been vaccinated. Everything, <laughs> everything in that room has been vaccinated. You know, so it's, it's not as, to me, it's not as egregious because, you know, they probably sat and had the meal but, without but, the but, thing. But on, on their side, on Peter Ducey's side, they're running around without masks. They're telling you not to get vaccinated. And now all of a sudden, Joe Biden mm -hmm. has got to be the adult in the room. Which the makes, Democrats are yeah. always the adults. In One time when I did a podcast in the beginning, I believe I said they make all this shit up just to silence people. If they can shut you up, then... They don't have to defend their points. They don't have to say why they're doing the insane stuff they're doing. It is no more clear evident than today. The same people who prescribe to all this crazy shit are running our country. And that's why it's all in the tank. It's just all fucked up. And people are waking up, including black rappers, and seeing... These people shouldn't be in charge of anything. Their sheer hubris... And their lack of paying attention to anything that's important. I could correlate it to most work experiences. I mean, the work experience I have right now for the company I work for, man, they're in the weeds on dumb shit. They don't care about the important shit. They're discombobulated. But emails and COVID policy, because they're in California, that's the corporate headquarters. That's really important. Coordinating 85 big steps that are happening at once in, a, in the middle of a week during inventories. No, that's not important. Nobody cares about that. The fact that you're still trying to do business as usual with diminished staffs everywhere because Biden's build back better means everybody gets free. So people don't want to work. It's not an antidote. It's just reality. I had 20 applications for an entry position. I sent out 16 emails. I got four replies and two people showed up. That's it. Most of them are doing the Tennessee law. They just want to be able to get their unemployment. The rest of them don't give two fucks. They'll stay home. They'll collect free. Because you know why I have to work for things? Why? If you work for things, 
That takes work. And then if they do work, it's where's mine? I'll play the fucking woke game. Don't really want to. I mean, for fuck's sake. Everybody realizes the way it's supposed to be. You know, I dog the military and the police forces and all that stuff. But I'll I'll be honest. I hired somebody that looked like a country person. They're majoring in environmental sciences. They're woke. The appearance doesn't look that way. But they know that's the wave of the future. They've done such a good job demonizing anybody with an opposing view that people just go along with this stuff anymore because they just don't want the confrontation. And I think it gets to that point that we've said numerous times on the show. Confrontation is what we need now. I'm not talking arm insurrections, grabbing guns. But we got to push back. We can't sit on the sidelines and just let all this shit happen. If they get their way and they build back better and they get the $5 trillion with the bullshit, they will enslave generations that will never work again. If they're able to take over elections, nobody will ever get voted in that they don't pick. If we allow the deep state and the FBI just to persecute people who are protesting against their kids getting indoctrinated, if we let the FBI rig an insurrection... As we're finding out, they were amongst the people that entered the building. And we don't say something. We will turn into a dictatorship. They will be able to win, but we have to vote. We have to sound off, and we have to have confrontation. Yesterday was a funny thing. I I didn't want to yell at my boss because I didn't want to get fired. I still need four more paychecks, and I'm done. Made the era of buying this beautiful fireplace. It's like an electric fireplace, but it doesn't look, it's like five feet tall. It looks like a mantle. You put it against your wall and it's flush and it looks like a real fireplace because, you know, we can't have a fireplace upstairs. So I made that bill. So I added $1,200 to our debt. Very expensive, but it's real wood. It's beautiful. And by the end of the week and all the things, I was so fucking angry at a stupid email about me saying ma'am and not. That I called a person that's one of the elder statements. They're my junior bosses. I really don't work for them, but I do work for them because that's how this place runs. And by the time I get done and he vents and he agrees with everything I say, he goes, well, the way I look at it, it's kept me saying this is a California company and this starts a discussion. Discussions of what we need because we need to wake people up, blah, 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 blah. He didn't really agree with what I was saying, but in the end, he gave me an interesting idea. And that idea was without confrontation, without challenging people, there is no discussion. There's just silence. And they want us silent. And if we remain silent, and we don't push back at all, and we all walk away from social media, and we turn off the TV, and we don't vote, they get exactly what they want. They're breaking us down slowly but surely because your kids come up and go, why are we all racist? Why is the planet going to end in eight, year, or eight years or six years now? I don't even know how many fucking years. They're winning because they've indoctrinated the world, including the fucking military into this shit. And they have the biggest mouthpieces in the world, the media, that never stops. We have to confront. 
We have to call out their circular logic. None of it makes sense. Oberman is a perfect encapsulation. I don't want cisgender, but I want transgender, which is a guy with a dick. You still have a guy in your dorm. And statistically, they commit more of the harassment. U.S. Army survey, it wasn't heteros getting harassed. It was gay and lesbian and trannies. They're harassing each other. But she doesn't know that because she's never been challenged on her idiocy. My daughter, who I still love, she was challenged. She became the victim. She ran away. But eventually these people are going to end up with no friends and nobody to talk to. And they're going to have to face the reality that they bought a load of shit. It's no different than the far right when I was a kid. It's no different than those people who did believe the election was going to get turned over and Trump was going to become president. They eat so much bullshit, they don't know they're eating bullshit. And until we push back, we challenge, we factually show everything you're saying is a fucking lie. From the 1619 Project to abortion to the third trimester is what America wants. I didn't even cover, but it was in the intro... Midnight flights ingesting people into fucking red districts. They are the fascist. And unless somebody stands up and goes enough, that being the American people, they win. So look for confrontation. Look for discussions. We got to stop letting all of this happen. This is our country. It's not the fucking deep states. It's not the intel communities. And it's goddamn not build back better. So this wraps up another episode of Flower Politic Podcast. Please share this with family and friends. Go to foppodcast.com to find this episode and all episodes with links to Rumble and SoundCloud. We're not going to do a Saturday podcast on the 23rd. So let's shoot for 27 October, Year of the Lord, 2021. For our next podcast. Until then, disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah yes and look for those confrontations. It'll be fun.